Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about members of the historical community releasing the anger that spans time a public service in righting wrongs and lowering blood pressure. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host, fellow historian, Kyle Glover. Hello, everyone. Now, having spent a few weeks back in the dark mists of ancient history, we are back up to date this week, or at least as up to date as any history show can be. We're back in the Second World War. And this week, we welcome award-winning historian, winner of the RAF Doctoral Academic Prize, Victoria Taylor. Victoria. Welcome to History Rage. Thank you so much for having me. I've been excited to get on this one and be a little bit more um, confrontational, perhaps, about history than you're normally allowed to be. (laughs) Well, I first heard you when you guested on We Have Ways of Making You Talk uh, with Mm. one of our former guests, James Holland, and one of our hopefully future guests, Al Murray, if you're listening. (laughs) But for the benefit of our other listener, do please tell us about, you know, your background and the work that you do and your interests. Absolutely. So I'm a Luftwaffe and RAF historian. I specialise in British and German aviation. Um, Sometimes I dip a little bit into the First World War, the Cold War, um, and also the interwar period. But normally I tend to focus more on the RAF and the Luftwaffe because that's always been the narrative that has kind of captured my attention the most. So that's where I tend to study. I kind of have a foot quite firmly in an academic camp, um, having done my Mm. PhD recently, but also going into public facing history, I think is incredibly important in terms of taking what you learn in the the ivory tower and applying it to real life, really, in real situations and meeting real people. So that's, that's where I come from, really. Okay. Just what was it about the Luftwaffe that made you go, that's the very subject for me? (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, that, that it, I, it's hard to justify that without sounding like it's, you know, a bit dodgy. Um, I think ultimately the interest in the Luftwaffe came from the interest in the RAF, simply because I grew up just outside RAF Waddington when mm-hmm. I used to live uh, there. And um, I used to get really used to seeing the Battle of Britain memorial flights, so of course, I was seeing hurricanes and spitfires. And as a result, I think once you're already invested in that strand of history, you start to automatically think about, so what about the other side? Who are they up against? Who are they, the belligerents that they're dealing with? And where are they coming from psychologically, militarily, etc.? And that kind of came from the fact that I was very much enthralled to looking at different branches of the RAF. So I'd be looking at Bomber Command, Fighter Command, Coastal Command, etc. Um, and then looking into those missions. Uh, for my master's, mm-hmm. I started looking at the Dambusters in British wartime and post-war mythology. And that mission I found particularly interesting because of the element of surprise and really the lack of yeah. Luftwaffe resistance that was made during that raid because of the element of surprise. And so really, because of their absence from that story to some extent, that's why I wanted to look at them for my PhD. I mean, I've never met a Luftwaffe historian, so I'm a little bit you know, oh. put away. Um, so I have met several members of the Luftwaffe, some of them polite, mm. some of them still quite scary. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you're my first actual Luftwaffe historian. Mm. So welcome aboard. Thank you. Now, History Rage is all about that thing that you hate the most. And it's that yes. thing that's been driving away, gnawing away at your soul for God knows how long. I mean, you haven't got, I've probably been angry about things longer than you've been alive. (laughs) But tell us, please, in your own words, with as much emotion as you feel necessary, Victoria, what do you wish people would just stop believing and get over? I strongly, vehemently want people to stop thinking that the Luftwaffe was a clean Luftwaffe. I think the fact that you mention that some of the ex-Luftwaffe personnel, some of the veterans that you've met, you found creepy. There's a good reason that you found them creepy. You know, there is this this really seedy underbelly to the Luftwaffe that I think a lot of people pass over because they look at the fighter aces specifically. They look at these sort of Mm -hmm. post-war reconciliation friendships between, you know, people like Adolf Gallant and Douglas Bader, and they see all of these greats of the air and automatically think that they can paint an entire organization as a certain perspective as a certain political ideology or or rather being apolitical because of that and I think the problem is is because people get too enamored with um you know sort of the shiny epaulets I think they're looking far too much at that rather than the fact that yeah okay some of the Luftwaffe were you know, honourable men. Some didn't care about politics. Some flew for the love of flying. But there's also many other murky moments that cling yeah. to the Luftwaffe that people don't look at. Yeah, I mean, just to bring in the you mentioned the the Luftwaffe people that I've met that were still still quite creepy. And it was um, when you go into a lot of events and 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 met with quite a few of them. You could always ask them to, would you show me your wallet? And usually you will find they will pull their wallet out and in there will be a photograph of them in their wartime flight gear. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one in question that I had pulled out his photograph and it was him on the left in all mm-hmm. his nice flight gear, still looking, cutting quite the dash. And on the right, still, even as late as 2010, carrying a photograph of the Fuhrer in the wallet with him. <laughs> 
Exactly. And I don't really know how to respond to that. No, you don't. There's there's no conversation, you know, avenue or pathway out of that that isn't awkward. And this is the thing is that people seem to so often in history cannot have that subtlety of or, or that nuance of thinking about people's characters and the way that they can be incredibly complex. I mean, for instance, we'll get on to this later. Just Goering, if you look right at the top of the Luftwaffe, you've got the man mm-hmm. that, on the one hand, protected some of the Jewish personnel in the Luftwaffe for his own needs, but you know, protected them to the point that some personnel felt that actually they would be safer in the Luftwaffe with him at the helm, and yet also orchestrator of the Holocaust. So when you start to look at just one leader, you can see how, you know, in your case, for instance, there can be two sides to one person and it all decide it all depends on which side they're willing to share with you and in some ways it's even more disturbing when they do want to or rather that they don't see anything wrong with sharing that darker side with you as if it's no big deal i think that is the truly terrifying part yeah that that is somewhat uncomfortable <laughs> so you mentioned them that we've no clean luftwaffe mm. and from that i mean that the luftwaffe has got its hands just as dirty as the rest of the german military the nazi military itself so can you give us and kyle I'm going to expect you to stay calm. Okay. Can you give us some examples of uh, of Luftwaffe atrocities? Yes. I mean, I think in terms of... It's difficult to quantify across the Wehrmacht which arms are more politically indoctrinated or, or saturated than others. Obviously, I mean, the army had a particular reputation of on the Eastern Front of that aggressive hand-to-hand fighting. And so... Those sort of aspects, I think the Luftwaffe was always seen as being a bit cleaner because of its flying arms. And indeed, there were Luftwaffe veterans who tried to claim after the war that because they were in the Luftwaffe, they were lucky because they were separate from what was seen as all the dirt that was going on. Certainly, the most notable atrocity in the Luftwaffe was with an arm that 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 wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't bomber pilots or fighter pilots. And that was with its paratroopers, its Fallschirmjäger. And... To clarify for for British audiences, the the paratroopers in Germany were with the Luftwaffe, not the army. And the main atrocity there was when Germany was trying to take Crete in Operation Mercury towards the, the end of the spring of 1941. And on the 2nd of June, there was what was known as the Massacre of Condo Marie, which saw the Luftwaffe, or rather the the paratroopers of the Luftwaffe, take revenge on some of the island's inhabitants. And they ended up shooting between, numbers vary, but between 20 to 60 uh, men of the local population. And really, this was just in reprisal of the fact that the taking of Crete was disastrous for the Luftwaffe. It only just, it really is a Pyrrhic victory. They only just take the island and, and Hitler doesn't want to allow any more paratroop drops afterwards because it's so disastrous where he can avoid it. And it was seen basically as um, retaliation because a lot of the of the Cretans had been able to stave off the parachute drops and to make it particularly difficult and, and inflict serious losses on the Germans. And it was retaliation, really. And that is perhaps the most organized atrocity that was afflicted with the Luftwaffe that cut that was under Kurl Student and which was uh, only really came to light when a German war correspondent, Franz Peter Wechsler, 
testified about it and it came up, you know, in the Nuremberg trials and everything. So that's the main atrocity that is linked to the Luftwaffe in terms of you know, of it being a, a fixed historical event. But there was evidence within the Luftwaffe of different branches being involved sort of in ad hoc here and there atrocities. So, for instance, there was a Luftwaffe transport pilot, Oberleutnant Fried, who uh, testified that, or rather was overheard by British intelligence saying about how he'd been involved in an SS massacre of some Polish prisoners um, when they were stationed there. Um, and he was basically told by an SS captain, grab a machine gun and let's go. And they ended up killing 1,500 Jews. There's also incidents where an air signalsman in the Luftwaffe mentioned about how there was a NCO called Kern from Bavaria who had rounded up all of his units and said, we, we need to suppress the prisoners. And they said, you know, that by the time they came back and they'd killed all these prisoners, all of the men that had taken part got the Iron Cross. They were celebrated the minute they got back to Vienna. And even just general day-to-day violence on the Eastern Front, again, there is this image of the Luftwaffe being free from it if you're in the flying arms because, you know, you're nowhere near the ground. But British intelligence did overhear some bomber crews or rather a specific bomber pilot that said, you know, we've hanged quite a few Russians um, and were involved in that level of, of barbarity, even if it wasn't seen as much of an atrocity in some points on the Eastern Front because there was a more general war of annihilation, which, of course, was already driven by Nazi Germany. So, In terms of Luftwaffe atrocities, there's a variety of moments that are more to do with Einsatzgruppen-style killings, you know, almost like firing squad murders. The actual flying arms aren't always as involved, but at the same time, they weren't completely divorced from it in the same way that it's always portrayed. And and indeed, with Johannes Steinhoff, he made a comment about, you know, the, the famous German fighterist Johannes Steinhoff. He mentioned about the fact that he'd heard in Poland about the SS devising a so-called clever way, in inverted commas, of eliminating Jews. And he sort of said, you know, I'm too busy. I'm a fighter pilot. I, you know, I, I unfortunately, I couldn't find any more about it. But it really was swirling around the Luftwaffe. War atrocities and the Holocaust were, were all very much leaking into the Luftwaffe in ways that often weren't, uh, weren't verbalised after the war. Mm. Yeah, you've kind of already started to answer this question already, but how did the Luftwaffe differ in their views between the Soviets and the Western Allies? When you when you talk about the German or Axis ground forces, the difference is stark mm. in their treatment of the two two sides. So how how did the German Air Force treat them? The Luftwaffe has quite a similar pattern as with the army. You've got this idea of with the Soviets, they see them as subhuman. In a lot of cases, in there's some Luftwaffe letters, I think from one man that's in a, a flak artillery that says about how the English aren't afraid to go hand in hand with such a bestial subhumanity. And you often see this kind of racist language that shows them as being these untermenschen and being, you know, nowhere near being on the level of the su- supposedly superior white Nordic German, you know, the, the typical Aryan. And that mm. does crop up in their letters they do mention about the fact that you know across its different branches that anyone that is of uh, among the soviets that is of slavic background for instance are are simply inferior in their eyes there certainly is a difference in tone when it comes to talking about 
their enemies that were racially deemed to be more similar to them. And there was one man in the Luftwaffe who wrote a letter saying about how um, you can hardly compare the Norwegians with the Poles because the Poles are are an entirely different race. And that they, they mentioned this idea of the fact that in their eyes, the lads still hope for Tommy and the Norwegians can be useful to us. Whereas with the Poles, they're more likely to go off and do stupid things, I'm told, and that sort of thing. And so there is a marked difference in the way that they feel racially, at least for, for some members of, of the Luftwaffe, they feel racially that they can bargain with those that are of Anglo-Saxon or Nordic mm-hmm. heritage because they're seen as kind of being on their own footing, I suppose. Whereas there's those who are seen as having, not having that heritage, you know, that, that, whereas when they don't have that heritage, there is this idea of them not being on the same level because of the fact that they think racially they're inferior. And so that doesn't just happen on the Eastern Front, but it also happens in the Balkans. And you get similar dialogue as well. There's a lot of um, prejudice in that regard in terms of, of different groups within, you know, say Croatia, for instance, um, or rather within Yugoslavia, who are seen as not being worthy of treatment in occupation because of the fact that they're seen as only being good for slave labor the same way as they see the Poles or the Russians. And I think also when you look in the theatre as well, that makes a big difference because you have, for instance, you know, the, the typical idea of the Vernichtungskrieg, the war of annihilation on the Eastern Front. And therefore, you've got a racial element behind that. It's trying to keep like that kind of idea of linking in that Slavic background, but also linking that in with Bolshevism as well. Because, of course, you know, that's also put in racially as well, because they have the association of the Jewish world conspiracy as well. So it's, it's inherently quite racial and racist. Whereas when you look at, say, for instance, North Africa, and of course, Rommel characterised North Africa as a, as a war without hate. It's interesting that the letters seem a lot more directionless. There's not the same sort of, we need to protect the Volkskörper, the, the, yeah, the Volkskörper, the body politic of Germany in the same way. And so it's really interesting because suddenly those letters about talking about fighting the British, they're they're like, well, this just seems a really directionless war. This doesn't seem to be going in any specific direction. With the war of annihilation, there's a very clear purpose on the Eastern Front and around it. I think that's the main defining feature is, is how that hatred unfolds or doesn't unfold, depending on the racial background of the country that they're fighting against. It can't unravel the reason for... The invasion of the Soviet Union without. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's bombarded into them, you know, across the entire Wehrmacht. They are very much exposed to that anti Soviet, anti Russian, anti Bolshevik, anti Semitic material in a way that isn't used quite as strongly when talking about, say, the British or the Americans. I mean, there are some similarities in language. They do mention, yeah. for instance, the idea that they feel like the Jews are controlling Britain as well and are controlling this plutocratic, democratic nation, these gold greedy nations as they as they sort of make those those anti-Semitic tropes. But it's not as pronounced as it is when looking at the actual war of annihilation on the Eastern Front and how they basically present you know, that front is being a racial struggle as well as just a struggle, a, a general war. 
you use that phrase there a lot, the, the war of annihilation. We never mm. talk about occupied Poland. Poland is mm. just removed as far as they, they're concerned. We never talk about occupied Russia for the parts of it that, that they mm. did get into. They're just sweeping all that aside. Yet we have occupied France. We have neutral Spain. You have, mm. we even have, you know, annexed Austria. Mm-hmm. You know, occupied Guernsey. It's, mm. it, it's never the intention to wipe the British. Even the French, who are pretty much one of Germany's historic traditional enemies, they have mm. no interest in wiping them out, just occupying and governing. Wipe some of them out. Yes, I will give you yes, that. Yes, uh, no the Jewish populations, yeah. The French race out. Yes, yes. Well, in the I way think... that they would wipe out the Russians. Well, I, th- I think that's that's definitely true in terms of the fact that, you know, Hitler did have an admiration for French culture. Um, and when that is separated from, in his eyes and in the eyes of the Nazis, the French Jews, then that's an easier distinction for them to make in that regard. Um, obviously, with Britain, there was an earlier admiration from Hitler for the British Empire, what it had achieved, the shared racial heritage and stock of the Anglo-Saxons that is there and I think that it's presented or you know countries like Britain and France are presented in Nazi propaganda in such a way that you know they're obviously made to be a little bit dehumanized but it is very much more their Jewish populations that that receive that treatment Mm -hmm. the most but it is interesting that there, there does seem to be a lack of understanding on fronts like North Africa, which is, you know, seen as a bitter but chivalrous war, as some historians call it, after, you know, in the post-war period. And they'd have stories, there was there's um one Luftwaffe man who noticed that when they were on North Africa, they were going to be charged by the British. So they wrote on their tent, you know, don't touch anything, we'll be back. And they'd scrambled and they'd left. And then they came back the next day and nothing had been touched. And so this Luftwaffe man was writing back to his family and saying, you know, it it just seems so bizarre here because it doesn't seem like actual violence in a way, you know. Whereas when you look at the letters on the Eastern Front in that regard, it's so, so much more about dehumanizing the Russians and calling them like cannon fodder and robots and all of these different aspects that truly dehumanize them to a level of we need to wipe out these people because we can't compromise with them in in their eyes you know when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So to carry on with this sort of thread, how politically intertwined was Nazism with the Luftwaffe? How politically involved was its members? I would say that 
it's important to remember that the Luftwaffe is an inherently politicized organization from the beginning. It's very existence its very yeah. conception yeah, is highly indeed, politicized yeah. because of course it's created the original schwarze luftwaffe or the shadow luftwaffe you know the secret air force that comes out in spite of the restrictions of versailles which is constructed in weimar germany before the nazis take over from 1943 its creation was automatically to push against versailles to reclaim german aerospace um and i think in that regard because it was automatically politically charged, as was German aviation in general, I think that that automatically made it susceptible to politics. And I would say that it was not entirely steeped in National Socialism. Of course, there were pockets of of resistance Mm. of those that didn't believe in its ideology and who stood up against its leaders. But the majority, I think, fell into this deal with the devil in terms of giving up their political autonomy and agreeing to pay lip service in exchange for getting its shiny new aircraft and uniforms and identity um, Mm -hmm. and all of those benefits. And I think as a result, it automatically became politicised because it had, in many ways, far more to gain than the army or the navy because even though, of course, they had been restricted after Versailles, they were not impinged upon quite as severely you know the, the the entirety of german aviation more or less was wiped out after versailles and i think well what i found in my research is i think the luftwaffe was at its most broadly political in the interwar period and during the spanish civil war and i think the reason for that is that this of course is the peak of hitler's years as general bloodless you know gaining either gaining all these different territories and annexations mm-hmm. in the late 1930s or with the Spanish Civil War it being a resounding success and a really successful baptism of fire for the Luftwaffe and in that period you know there's a variety I think Steinhoff is one of them that said when Göring gave a speech um, not long after the Luftwaffe was going to be revealed he said about how you're going to be my core of vengeance and Steinhoff basically said, you know, there wasn't one person that weren't going to give their utmost in support of this regime when you've got all of this splendor and all of this kind of glory on on the line for the Luftwaffe. So I think it was automatically very susceptible in that regard to politicization. I think that, you know, certainly there were men that passed through the Luftwaffe who never encountered an atrocity or who didn't harbour national socialist views and i think it's important to not discount those who were you know say gunther Rall, for instance who made sure that his wife was protected when she was hiding jews or mm-hmm. people like hans marseille who went against nazi racial policy in befriending a black a black south african man you know it's there's moments like that that are important to document but i think the majority Some, of course, were ardent national socialists, but I think the majority fell into this kind of tolerance, passive tolerance, which, you know, passive tolerance can be just as damaging in some ways as being ardently political because you are still allowing it to be Mm -hmm. perpetuated. Um, And so I think in that regard, the fact it was willing to to keep quiet in that regard of of factors which really should have been alarming shows that really it was quite strongly political, even if they didn't necessarily strongly identify with National Socialism. Yeah. So towards the end of the war, Goering, 
cuts ties with Hitler and is actually declared a traitor. He's declared a traitor from, as I understand it, in the bunker, hmm. pretty much with weeks to go. But for all his for all his being firmly up there, up at the top of the Nazi party, being an entirely a, a linchpin of Hitler's inner circle, to pull the plug. What what does that and what can you tell us about Goering and his character? I think the fact that Hitler was able to be so easily manipulated by Martin Bormann when that telegram comes through, you know, the fact that Goering has, has mm-hmm. is basically just trying to to qualify, look, I taking over as commander of the Reich, seeing as I've, I've heard that you're going to be dying in the bunker or not. <laughs> and the fact that Hitler immediately, at first, doesn't have much of a response and then Bormann is able to paint to him, you know, oh, Goering's being a traitor, you know, he's committing treason, he's trying to usurp you. I think that tells you everything you need to know about where Goering stood in Hitler's eyes at that point. Um, And I think Goering very much did not do himself any favours to be considered in that bad light. You know, he was very much a opportunistic and blustering individual you know he he had had you know bravery and greatness in the in the first world war although there were reports that he had um massaged his his number of kills so to speak but he was you know at least <laughs> find me a pilot that doesn't yes well no that's true but it, i mean <laughs> when you think of how Goering is and his persona you can imagine that you know he, he could probably exaggerate more than your average pilot yeah but um you know it's it's one of those yeah. things where he certainly had a certain level of charm and I don't think Hitler would have made him such a fixture of the Nazi party if he didn't recognize that he had this this sort of fighter a swagger about him which he knew could be incredibly useful in public relations mm-hmm. and you know he did have that you know that that veneer of credibility of having served in the great war and having that level of knowledge that it seemed like he seemed like a natural choice but i think it's one of those things that goering really was terrible at talking up the big game and then not delivering you know, he was very much a man that was, even though he would never admit yeah. it, and he had this sort of mm-hmm. real cloak of invincibility and t- to the point of arrogance, you know, I think he was a man that constantly needed validation. And then when Hitler couldn't give that to him because of his perpetual mistakes and blunders and and letting his hubris get the best of him, you know, it just made him more and more desperate uh, as Hitler's lapdog. And I think he just got to a point where, you know, I I think he was so desperate to try and like kind of cling on that, you know, he was really trying to remain relevant until the end of the regime long after his reputation had been tarnished. Mm -hmm. But I think he was one of those people that any respect he garnered, he normally frittered very, very quickly. He was a man that... At first, he was he was respected in the Great War by his junior officers because he often gave these, you know, quite quite spirited reposts against his commanders, um, you know, and he was seen as being very charming and friendly and approachable. But it was one of those things that most people could see through it. It was a facade, um, and I think Hitler, by the end of the war, considering his reaction, he'd seen well through it. He knew Goering's flaws inside and out, and you can see why he lost his temper with him. But at the same time, I think Goering had 
it didn't matter whether he acted perfectly by that point. He was just so, he was just unraveling as a human that no one in that command permission would have, would have given him that opportunity, really. Mm. So Goring's always struck me as, as being the kind of old Prussian aristocrat type, mm. which is yeah. completely reversed from, from the fundamentals of national socialism. Hmm. How does Goering end up there? Within National Socialism? Pretty much, yeah. Well, I mean, it is an interesting point. I mean, he was very much, as you say, of that Prussian tradition. And you can see that in the fact that that Prussian tradition is carried on very much into the National Socialist Luftwaffe. You know, they, they still have... In one of their guidebooks from the mid-1930s, they mentioned about the fact that a Luftwaffe recruit can often be puzzled that he has to have this Prussian soldier's upbringing first before he becomes an aviator, for instance. And I think it mainly came from the fact that Prussiandom was actually very much celebrated in the Third Reich. It was seen as this this standard of of military mm. and historical precedent that was meant to be achieved, even if they didn't necessarily agree with sustaining it in the same way. They didn't want to be too rooted in the past, the expense of the National Socialist movement. It was very yeah. important for the Nazis to legitimise their movement. And I think that those sort of ideas of of strong Prussian values and morals are very much taken in that regard. And, and Goering often spoke of those sort of ideas of having, you know, iron discipline um, and bravery and commitment to duty and that sort of thing. And so it helped the Nazis legitimise their regime, but also make sure there wasn't too much of a radical break between different traditions. And so I think it was basically transmuting those that kind of Prussian background into something that could be used for a new era. But it's also noticeable that it's very much instilled in the Luftwaffe in many different ways and you know within the Wehrmacht more generally in terms of the Iron Cross for instance or you know Mm. using the oak leaves both of which are very much linked to that era and that tradition and I think that's the thing I don't think being Prussian was necessarily in the way of being National Socialist I think it was just some were much better at reconciling the two ideas than others and Goering I think was very much suckered into Hitler's level of of ambition and wanting to restore German greatness, which, of course, would make sense that, you know, yeah. Goering would align with that cause of wanting to restore Germany to a sense of former greatness um, when he was so threatened by the German revolution. So I, I think yeah. that's the thing. I think it basically he took that Prussian background and translated it into the Nazi movement in that regard. Yeah, recognizing an opportunity for for himself and his advancement, or possibly yes. survival in that revolutionary yes. atmosphere, and goes yeah. goes along with it. Yeah, true, true. Okay, well, the entire, pretty much the entire war mm. and its history since, and the teaching of that history has been framed around the idea that the Reich are the bad guys, mm. and that that whole Nazi system is evil irrespective mm-hmm. of which part of it you're in. Yes. So how have we ended up with this idea that these Germans, <laughs> these Nazis, mm. aren't the bad guys? I I think there's actually several reasons. I think the first reason, which I think is the, is the more benevolent reason in some regards, I think, is, as I'd mentioned earlier on, 
the idea of of post-war reconciliation. I think there was Mm -hmm. a genuine need to have understanding between, say, RAF and Luftwaffe uh, veterans or United States Army Air Forces veterans and and RAF and and Luftwaffe veterans. I think there was a sense of needing to make sense of the conflict that both sides had, had been through. And I think as a result, often there was an emphasis on trying to get it, get to know each other man to man, fighter ace to fighter ace, rather than understanding their background. Um, so, for mm. instance, you you can look at the fact that Hans Ulrich Rudel wrote a, uh, his his memoir Stuka Pilot, um, and it was very very popular in both America and in Britain. And I believe it's Douglas Bader, I think, wrote a forward for it, and he says, you know, I've only met him once or twice, but he's a gallant chap, and I wish him the best of luck. And I think it's one of those things that obviously Bader's intentions were honourable in terms of of wanting to say, you know, this was our foe. We've learned our lessons. We're in peacetime now. But the problem yeah. is, is that Rudel was actually a neo-Nazi. He was linked to neo-Nazi organisations that he tried to set up in 1946. He'd actually very much stayed sympathetic to the Nazi cause for the rest of his life. And it's one of those things that, you know, that absolutely wasn't, Bada's fault but at the same time he wasn't to know that but at the same time that's how we've been able to kind of have that dialogue of of having these you know these RAF veterans for instance coming in and saying you know this was the enemy but we've made amends or that sort of thing or we've we've bonded through the experiences we went through and the problem with that is that a lot of Luftwaffe veterans that did still have tendencies towards Hitler and the Third Reich were able to sort of fly under the radar. No, no pun intended. Yeah. And so, uh, well, maybe pun slightly intended. And uh, so, yeah, but I think it's partly that. I think it's partly trying to understand where both sides were coming from. In America, there was a particular problem with what was known as the fetishization of the Wehrmacht because yeah. there was this strong idea during the Cold War that Nazi Germany was the country that had stood up to, you know, like the Bolshevik nightmare in their eyes, you know, of of, of having that yeah. that Cold War with the Soviet Union. And so there was this kind of idea of looking at, at who had stood up to them within the German Wehrmacht, and, and that didn't help. Um, but I think there's also a level of the fact that a lot of the Luftwaffe veterans that wrote their memoirs in the, in the post-war period were, were officers because of the fact that they had that standing uh, and because of the fact that a lot of the allied occupying forces came across the Luftwaffe and found that actually the officers tended to be far more willing to disavow any association with national socialism, whereas the younger ones tended to be a little bit more radicalised. I think there was this idea that the officer corps of the Luftwaffe was on the whole relatively untouched by national socialism. And so that you started to get these pervading myths that came out of place where there's a level of trying to be understanding on the Anglo-American side, but also at the same time, it seemed to be confirmed in their experiences. And I think that's why a lot of Luftwaffe officers in particular were able to hide just how affiliated they were with the Third yeah. Reich. And then over time, that that gets layered and layered and layered until mm-hmm. we're in a position now where we feel that there is actually a branch of the Third Reich that was all right. Yeah. And yeah, and I mean, you you also have the issue as well that during Nuremberg, because most of the Luftwaffe personnel that were put on trial were either very very senior, 
like Göring or Erhard Milch, for instance, or that they were in specialised cases. So there was, of course, the Luftwaffe medical doctor trial, which, you know, there were a lot of doctors affiliated to the Luftwaffe that had carried out horrific medical experimentation on behalf of the Luftwaffe on um, concentration camp inmates. It was seen as being a little bit exceptionalist. And I think one of the issues at Nuremberg was there was this idea put out by the Allied forces that basically it's not a crime to be a soldier, a sailor or an airman, but it is if you were a commander sort of thing. And so I think, again, and considering the fact that so many of the Allies ended up working with German Luftwaffe personnel after the war, you know, for instance, in West Germany, um, they brought so many ex-Luftwaffe personnel into a NATO-backed Luftwaffe. I think they sort of disavowed that kind of political influence or rather tried to block it out because of the fact that they knew they were going to be working with these people and they didn't want to be bringing it up so much to the point that they couldn't get what they needed. So as a result, it's another issue in terms of the fact that I think normally the rank and file was seen as being a little bit more innocent um, than some of them truly were. Okay, now, this is going to be quite a big question, but we know you recently <laughs> yes. defended your PhD thesis. So, um, what's next? Well... You're going to get awarded for yeah. a start. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yes, that's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm currently um, finishing off at the University of Hull, so I'm doing my little tweaks of my thesis before I get the official paperwork through for the PhD. Um, and doing a bit of teaching, appropriately enough, on the Third Reich. And then Good. after Dispel the... these myths. Yes, that's the whole point. That's what we're trying to do. Absolutely. So that's first. Um, I recently set up my, you know, I've gone freelance and set up Spitfire Philly Aviation, which is my sort of consultancy and, and uh, all the different parts of, of being a historian, really, what publications go through and everything. So been trying to expand that. As I say, trying to keep a foot in both the academic and the popular world. Um, so I've got some journal articles and book chapters on the go. And then on the other hand, I've also got some more mainstream media projects going as well. So really, it's just a case of trying to push out this message about the Luftwaffe, I think, this this rant um, and trying to correct perceptions in that regard. But also hopefully moving on to new projects as well and expanding my research repertoire where possible. Excellent. Well, do do please make sure that you don't become oh, that excellent. mad old woman that's just banging on about the Luftwaffe all the time. <laughs> no, I, I shall try not to. I mean, it, it's yeah, awfully it's... draining. It's it's very, you know, some of the material that I read, you know, reading anti-Semitic rants and, and grisly reports of, of what goes on. But there were some points of, of my PhD where I had to take breaks and write it slowly because yeah. it's just exhausting what what man can do to fellow man so you know it was um I think I probably need to find something a bit <laughs> I've been sat with this material for about four years and it can't be much good for a person but you know <laughs> no. well yeah. thank you very much for that Victoria that's given us quite a lot to think about and yes really quite a lot to to call out whenever we come across this myth again uh, and no doubt we will if you'd like to know more about Victoria's work, then uh, do check out her website, spitfirephillyaviation.com, and you can find links to all of the work, TV work, speaking that she's done. And you can follow her on Twitter, at spitfirephilly. And we're going to put links to all of those in the show notes. But once again, thank you for bringing another Third Reich rage <laughs> to History Rage. Uh, you are so very welcome. Pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>
Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, if you'd like, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And you can leave comments, thoughts, and please send us your own History Rages using the hashtag History Rage. We want to know what really gets up your nose. If you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe. Leave us a review whenever you get your podcasts. That really helps us a lot. Thanks a lot for listening. And from all of us here at History Rage... Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.